With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in education into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was wounded! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin, And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From UFOs to psychic powers and government conspiracies, history is riddled with unexplained events. You can turn back now or learn the stuff they don't want you to know. A production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hello, welcome back to the show. My name is Matt. My name is Noel. They call me Ben. We are joined, as always, with our super producer, Paul, Mission Control, Decant in spirit. Today we are joined, uh, in reality, uh, with our super producer, Maya Cole. So do say hello to her on the web. Most importantly, you are you, you are here, and that makes this stuff they don't want you to know. This is uh, an episode that, I don't know about you guys, it's been on my mind for a long time, for a number of years. Since 2014, Ben? Yeah, five five years to be exact, Matt, right. Has it been that long? It has indeed. The first season of True Detective premiered in 2014. This series, written by an author named Nick Pizzolatto, seemed set to change the face of television as we knew it. It's one of those prestige programs that's kind of like a very long serialized film, like The Wire, right? Or Breaking Bad. Uh, maybe The Sopranos would be another one. Sure. Uh, then, of course, Lost, right? All these things that change uh, the way we look at formats and the way we look at storytelling. True Detective made this enormous impact on the zeitgeist, the spirit of our age. And a lot of people said, where do these ideas come from? What possessed you, Nick, Nicholas, to create something this dark and deranged and gritty and horrifying? Can I do a shameless plug really quick? Nick Pizzolatto actually wrote an episode for a series that's coming out that I worked on called Bear and a Banjo. He wrote the, the ultimate episode, the finale. Really? Awesome. Yeah. They wrote well, the story. It will, and it's not horrifying at all. It's a little bit of a ghost story, honestly, but it's definitely lighter fare than what he wrote in True Detective. But check it out. The, the, the first episode of the show drops tomorrow, in fact, which is the, uh, the 2nd of October. So this will be in the past by then. But check it out. That's fantastic. True Detective was really one of those shows that had the tone somewhere between a film noir and a weird fiction, right? And totally. I think that's why a lot of people uh, latched onto it. And it felt kind of like you were saying, Ben, it felt so out there, the main storyline where there was corruption and terrible things happening to children. Um, at least it didn't feel real, right? But as we found out, maybe there's something else to it. 
That's that's correct, Matt. We do want to issue this disclaimer at the top of today's episode. Uh, this episode contains not only spoilers for True Detective Season 1 and probably a little bit of trash talking about True Detective Season 2, if we're being honest. This also contains discussion of graphic crimes of a sexual nature, uh, the discussion of animal cruelty, abuse, very, very heavy, uh, disturbing, potentially triggering things. So listener discretion is advised. Here are the facts. True Detective, uh, peek behind the curtain, uh, the three of us really loved this show when it came out. In it, in a way, True Detective could be described as an anthology. Each season, there are three seasons so far, uh, takes place in this, it's its own self-contained narrative that maybe exists in the same universe. Uh, each season will follow a different set of characters as they attempt to unravel uh, the twisted story of a crime, right? Or, uh, as you noted, in some cases, hide that story. True Detective Season 1 takes this just wonderful non-linear approach. It follows two homicide detectives in Louisiana from their initial investigation of the murder of a sex worker in the mid-90s, 1995, to their very problematic reunion and their relaunch of the investigation almost 20 years later. Here are the spoilers. Spoiler alert. If you do not want to be spoiled, if you haven't seen True Detective and you're going to get angry about spoilers, fast forward past this part, it gets it gets very strange very quickly. Interestingly enough, uh, True Detective was actually a one of the very first true crime magazines, kind of a pulpy, trashy true crime rag that published, I think, from the 40s up until the 70s. And it was all of these gritty, grisly details about actual murders. So in this series, uh, the first season, um, our detectives, our heroes, are sort of anti-heroes in certain ways. It's interesting the, the dynamic there between them we'll get more into. They come across a very deep... Uh, running intergenerational conspiracy, um, a secret cult with members across Louisiana society um, that ritualizes sexual assault and murder. And members of the cult are prominent figures in the community, politicians, uh, religious figures, pastors, drug dealers, high-level drug dealers, and more. Uh, There's an absolutely insidious use of smoke screens using thing, places like youth centers and churches and other spots that are sort of unimpeachable in their sanctity, right? Uh, trustworthy institutions used to cover up these horrific crimes. And while the detectives, Marty and Rust, do manage to eventually solve the immediate crime, which set them off on this this deranged journey, they are not able to get complete justice. They are not able to arrest the entire cult. And it's strongly implied that this cult continues on in some form. And even worse, some of the members of the cult, the prominent ones you mentioned earlier, Noel, retain their positions in society. They get away. Nothing bad happens to them. Yeah, that's the worst part. The thought that they – that it's over – it's over for those detectives because the case is over, but they will never be able to bring the actual or even know the like true extent of that operating conspiracy. Right, N- nor the history of it or how far back it goes. This work draws inspiration from a lot of places. First would be The King in Yellow, a delightful, disturbing book by Robert W. Chambers. It's an anthology of semi-linked stories, and four of these stories reference a mysterious work, a play called The King in Yellow, uh, that is about this same figure, this supernatural character called The King in Yellow or The Yellow King. And you never read the play in full. You only see it alluded to because when people read this play or when they see it performed, it drives them insane. You can see some excerpts in it. Uh, there was, uh, in, in the story, Casilda's Song, there's a, a line from Act 1, Scene 2 of the play, and uh, I'll just read this part. Song of my soul, my voice is dead. Die thou unsung as tears unshed shall dry and die in lost Carcosa. Carcosa? Ringing any bells, right? Mm-hmm. And this, so this was like atmospheric tone, right? Cosmic horror, which is 
explored, you know, in in True Detective, but it's not a it's not a, a supernatural monster film, right? It's not a supernatural monster story. There's this. It feels like it's teetering on the edge of it. It is always, it, yeah, yeah. Never really gets there. I think that's one thing that maybe was a little bit of a letdown for some folks near the, nearing the end of the season is I think there was an expectation there was going to be some supernatural qualities and uh, spoiler alert didn't really pan out that way. There are some interesting fan theories which cannot yeah. be cannot be proven or disproven without you know talking to Nick, but uh, but if you want to lose an afternoon, it's a great way to spend it. The one the other literary influence that Pizzolatto sites uh, is called The Conspiracy Against the Human Race. It's nonfiction essays by a horror writer named Thomas Ligotti, who is an amazing, very unhappy writer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Bad things happen in his stories. So as we know, in the in the story True Detective Season 1, there's the detective Rust Cole played uh, pitch perfectly by Matthew McConaughey. And Rust Cole is just over the idea of people. He has a pessimistic uh, philosophy that he expounds upon, apparently every time they're in a car, kind of. And he is also what we would call an anti-natalist, someone who thinks that uh, people are born and that's a negative thing and it gets worse from there. Absolutely. I mean, and it's definitely a philosophy that is much more prominent in his grizzled older version of, oh, yeah. of the character. The younger one, he sees definitely still got that vibe and he's constantly pissing off his partner played by Woody Harrelson for being a bit of a pill and, and always running his, his wife. Mouth. And well, that's... That happens later, but yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, but the uh, the story is framed in like a past and future kind of uh, cross-cutting, and the future Russ Cole is in a de- – not a deposition, but he's being interrogated by uh, police officers from I guess what would be modern day, and he's clearly been through some sh- Oh, yeah. yeah. And this is where a lot of his his statements come out, you know, not, not a deposition, but that interview, right? And – in earlier interviews outside of the universe of the show, as we said, Nick Pizzolatto said, well, this did influence me. This is an amazing piece of literature. Uh, but he was initially accused of plagiarism because of the similarity between Cole's dialogue and Ligotti's writing. And he does say there's an influence, but he does deny that he was in any way a plagiarist. But these are just two atmospheric philosophical things. They are the side. They are the sauce. They are not the main dish. The main dish, as you mentioned earlier, Matt, is the uh, terrible, terrible uh, unfolding of events in the course of the plot. And that leads us to today's question. What if there is more to the story? What if True Detective doesn't just take inspiration from works of fiction? What if there is a real story behind this television show. What if there is, for lack of a better phrase, a true, true detective? We'll learn more after a word from our sponsor. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists, like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. Grand Canyon University, an affordable private Christian university, is one of the largest and fastest growing universities in the country, offering more than 270 programs online. In addition to federal grants and aid, GCU's online students received nearly $130 million in institutional scholarships in 2022. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu slash myoffer to see the scholarships you may qualify for. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. 
I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Here's where it gets crazy. So all the, you know, the things that we see on screen, the overall characters and, you know, roughly the place and all of these things, the details in True Detective are fictional, right? I mean, that we can all agree on that. It's a fictional show about a fictional thing. However, <laughs> there appears to be at least one particular occurrence that, you know, really was a decade that it really hits troublingly close to what is explored at least within the television show. Right, right. We'll travel to Ponchatoula, Louisiana. Now, off air, the three of us were were flexing our our southern accent muscles. Uh, we we love a good we love a good down south voice. I'm going to try not to fall into it because this is serious stuff, but it might happen. There is a place, or there was a place in Ponchatoula, Louisiana, called Hosanna Church. It was founded by a pastor named Louis LaMonica. And originally when they started, they had less than 24 people, less than 24 congregates. It's a very small church, but it's not unusual for churches to start small, right? Oh, yeah. Yes, yeah, true. And in the 70s, this church was attended regularly by around 1,000 people. I wonder what changed. Uh, the facilities of Hosanna Church had a sanctuary, and behind that, there was a children's school. And um, Louis LaMonica, the founder and head pastor, like you mentioned, Ben, passed away in 1984, and the church went through about a decade of various temporary leaders until uh, Louis LaMonica's son, Louis LaMonica Jr., uh, took the reins. It should be noted here that the original Louis LaMonica Sr. was seen as kind of a paragon of the community. He was beloved by uh, both people that went to the church and known by people who just lived in the parish. Uh, or at least that's the story. And he was kind of a Ned Flanders. You get the vibe when you read people, you know, read people's accounts of meeting him and living with him. Not so for Jr., Louis LaMonica Jr., when he took the when he took leadership of the church, began circling the wagons. Things started to look strange for people on the outside of the church walls. He started excommunicating church members for various perceived slights or sins or missteps. It could be a disagreement over doctrine, sure, but if they attended another church even once, they would be excommunicated. Uh, One popular competitor was Harvest World Outreach Ministries, started by the former youth minister of Hosanna Church. This is troubling. A few years back, we um, we did a video in which we broke down the ways that cults operate on the human mind. And one of the first, one of the very first things a lot of cults will do when they're moving from being, you know, a a religion to an actual cult of some sort is they will isolate the members. They'll isolate the followers. This, you can see the video if you want, but this, this isolation itself, it's important to note, this is not a crime. 
this is just people deciding to live together in a like-minded way, and there is not a law against it. You can't really write a law against it because, you know, if people want to do things that other people think are weird, more power to them so long as they're not hurting anyone. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Uh, I just want to point out here really quickly that I've been a part of several church movements where um, my family and I followed a pastor to a different church. And it wasn't so much about the church itself. It was a lot about the people that were there, the congregation, but it was more about the experience you get when you're, you know, sitting in a pew listening to a pastor speak, right? Because it really is, in a lot of ways, a performance. And do I like this performance? Does it resonate with me? Oh, absolutely. Um, That's how it goes. And that's not inherently insidious, right? I no. mean, it's just a personal preference where it's like, I like this guy versus others. And why would I, yeah. you know, why would I get something different at the diner? You know, I like my corned beef sandwich. Well, yeah. And it hits in the nature of this. And, and just to get in, into that background a little bit, having this this person that you trust and have grown up with ostensibly, you probably had maybe had kids while this pastor was the head of your church and or whatever occurred in your life, you went through high school, whatever it is. Um, then he passes away, then you go through all these temporary things, and this new guy comes through, and I'm just imagining uh, being in the mindset of one of his congregation, what you're, what you're feeling as all of this stuff starts to happen that you're describing, Ben, oh, yeah. where he seems to be either going off the rails or at least uh, handling the reins in a very different way. So you think he was culling the members of the congregation that would not be susceptible to this new regime that he was trying to bring about, right? I think someone was. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, it, that's Oh, spoiler. A, yeah, well, there's a twist to that, okay, right? Okay. Uh, so LaMonica also, just like you said, I love that you point out culling. That's a good way to describe it. He also fought with the church's staff, other people who would be in the power structure, and he ordered multiple staff members to skedaddle, to leave the church and never return, including the church's secretary, who is his mother, He kicked his mom out of the church. Yeah. And it really doesn't make sense to me unless it is something a little offhanded that we're dealing with here because a church like that, especially a smaller church, even if you've got a thousand members, Mm -hmm. you you exist – because every Sunday and whatever other fundraiser you're having, people put money into a plate and that goes into the church fund, right? And no matter how many – no matter how small of a contribution, let's say it's just – $10 uh, every Sunday, maybe $5, maybe up to 20 or more. Getting rid of that on a monthly basis, if you think about it like a Netflix subscription or something, that uh, that's going to ruin a church really fast. Absolutely. And speaking of scandal, it was during this time, by their own confession, it was during this time that members of the Hosanna Church were routinely, ritualistically assaulting children and animals. The following information may not be suitable for all listeners. This comes from the New York Times. We have an excerpt here and we're using it to summarize some of the events but also to underline, to emphasize that this was not something that was reported in fringe sources. This was in papers of note. This was huge news. New York Times says Sheriff Daniel H. Edwards of Tangipoa said that as many as 25 children, about evenly split between boys and girls, might have been involved in sex acts at the youth center there in Hosanna, in cars and in the homes of at least two of those charged. The abuse, according to Edwards, seems to have begun in 1999 and stopped occurring on church grounds after 2003. However, Edwards went on to say nobody really believes they just stopped abusing children. Yeah, it's true. Edwards said that the group um, apparently had a pretty effective formula for going under the radar. Uh, And that was, uh, as we mentioned, the same in True Detective, using the church um, and that close-knit relationship between the members and victims who would very likely look the other way when it came to reporting uh, these abuses to authorities. For sure. And he didn't actually say, hey, look, guys, everybody, we've got devil-worshipping going on here, and it's a cult. They never do. Well, yeah, that's a pretty heavy claim, right? Mm -hmm. It almost feels you wouldn't be able to really print that necessarily because that is such an accusation, but it's uh, what they were doing there. What what at least some of the defendants who were involved in some of the cases that came out of this 
Um, they told investigators that, quote, devil worship was the reason for their participation in doing these atrocities to children and animals. I guess what I was getting at is like it's a slippery slope kind of situation when you're indoctrinated into a cult. No one says, hey, want to join my cult? It's kind of like that mission creep, right? You know, it happens a little bit over time and then before you know it, it's like the boiling frog kind of situation, you know? Sure, sure. It, it takes a little while, and then before you know it, this is just the situation you find yourself in, and you don't know how to get out. But in this case, they're saying, like, yeah, we joined this thing that I guess could be considered a cult because we wanted to be a part of the devil worship. Right. And I'm, I'm just laughing a little bit because when you said nobody comes up and says, hey, we joined my cult because we did a little bit of sketch comedy – in in that cult video, that's uh, exactly what you said. <laughs> and that's exactly yeah. Uh, with Matt as our as our dear leader, our spiritual guru, right? still ready to you know kick that thing back up into action whenever you guys are. I miss being a deity, so you know. I you had a gift for it. Let's mm-hmm. see. Chuck was on board. We had a lot of Jonathan Strickland was on board. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so in this case. At this point, the events occurring uh, in the Hosanna Church community appear to be a genuine case of devil worship. La Monica and his inner circle said that they murdered and defiled animals, they sacrificed cats, they sexually assaulted at least one dog while irreparably damaging the lives and the minds of multiple child victims. The criminals involved apparently used pentagrams, they wore robes and other props in the course of their crimes, and some of their victims were their very own children, their own biological offspring. There's no other way to say it. If this is true, it's a genuine case of ritualized satanic abuse. And we've talked about it before, the outbreak of hysteria that is now called the satanic panic, which gripped America in waves throughout the late 80s and the 90s. Most of the things, most of the stories we heard about satanic panic cases later turned out to be groundless. We're not saying none of them were true. We're saying that there was very little actual proof. But the media didn't really care. This was fantastic fodder for 60 Minutes type investigations and uh, grisly segments on the evening news. There just didn't seem to be too much reality to many of these stories. This case, however at least at the at first, appears to be an exception and one that almost went undiscovered. Authorities didn't learn about the crimes until 2005, right? And it started in the 90s. And that's when um, Nicole Bernard, who was 36 years old at the time, called the sheriff's office there in Louisiana from Black Lick, Ohio, to say she had fled town to save her child from abuse. And then the authorities learned that members of the town knew something was rotten much, much earlier. So the Telegraph actually reported that the church had attempted to intimidate some of the other residents of the area. They cited Tim Norman, uh, who was a property developer, retired property developer, um, who was a resident who lived very close by to the church. Um, he was quoted as saying that La Monica and his congregation um, had essentially waged war against him a war of intimidation, a campaign to try to uh, force him out of the community. Yeah, I mean, he he made a lot of accusations about what was going on. Some of them were, again, a little more colorful than others. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing he references is some kind of Native American uh, chanting or, you know, vocalizations that he characterizes them a little differently. Um, but like whooping noises. Ululations perhaps. Yeah, that that, uh, that would occur by the congregation in his garden or, you know, out near his property or perhaps even on his property. Mm-hmm. And that their behavior would just increasingly get stranger and stranger. My favorite line still from it is just – it stuck out to me reading uh, this guy's accounts. <sighs> not going to do a voice out of respect, but they wanted to baptize their children in my creek. Which I, isn't that crazy right? on the surface. Like totally. we got a body of water. We want to baptize somebody. Sure. Hey, that's not too bad. But I said, you can't do that here. There's gators in there. Yeah. Which is also probably true. <laughs> Checks out. Louisiana. Probably is true. But at the same time, what does that imply? Like that wouldn't have been part of the ritual. I mean, what, the fact that there are gators in there? Like they don't want to die. Oh, no. He's just – he's giving us a contrast as the non-member 
who lives in the area. I know. Yeah. But did this guy not sound like a bit of a kook? A this kooky? guy? Yeah. Yeah. A little, a little bit. bit. A little bit. Uh, certainly a little bit. But he also is referencing, and maybe he's just mischaracterizing some of the noises that he's hearing because sure. his his property really was in, in close proximity to this the buildings where things were allegedly occurring. Well, it reminds me of the, the Georgia Guidestone story where we, we did a, a little film for Amazon about that and we've talked about it on the show. And when I did a senior thesis film on that years ago, um, I interviewed a uh, pastor at a church that was nearby and just really quick, the Georgia Guidestones, this like stone granite monument in a rural part of Georgia that have been associated with things like the New World Order and the Illuminati and occasionally satanic rituals. And the pastor that I spoke to swore up and down that he saw blood rituals being done there. Absolutely no evidence of that ever having taken place. Um, or maybe what he saw was perhaps some pagans in robes doing some sort of solstice ritual. But I feel as though in his mind, being a particularly God-fearing type of man, inserted some detail in that maybe wasn't there. And it, it occurs to me, maybe some of that's going on here. I, I don't know. We all see through the lenses that we put up in front of us. That's right. That's right. And everybody's the protagonist of their own story. So they very well may have just been doing something in their community or in their movement. And he decided it was about him. You know what I right, mean? It's right. possible. Or he felt left out. Maybe it actually was uh, yeah, no, 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 some for rituals. Sure. For sure. Or maybe it's the, just the truth. <laughs> exactly. Well, and that's the way these kinds of stories, in particular this one, feels. Like – could all of this really have been happening, right? And there's so much more. Yeah, yeah. So in 2003, that's when we see the first confession. Law enforcement is not involved. Some members of the church confess to other congregates disclosing their crime and asking, according to authorities in later investigation, for forgiveness. This led to a schism, a final mass departure from the church. Hosanna's membership dwindled. You can imagine why that would occur. Right. Some people go up in front of church or you hear about people going up and confessing to doing those things. Uh, yeah, it would be done. Yeah, the you know, God may forgive, but it's, it's a tall order for a lot of people, especially given the um, – just the perverse nature of these crimes. Mm -hmm. Back to Nicole Bernard. She was the former spouse of Hosanna's youth minister, a guy named Austin Trey Bernard III. He had sometimes been described as the mastermind or the ringleader of this group. Bernard claimed that she had tapes and videos that belonged to the church that substantiated what she was saying because she was saying, you know, there's an abuse cult out there. Children are in danger. I have proof. And, and just to remind yeah. everybody, she's the one who called in from Ohio yes, to, yep. to like begin reporting on this or to begin telling people this story. And she was later arrested along with uh, some of the people that she named and along with her ex-husband, the youth pastor, Austin Bernard. That is just the first – of the confessions. So a uh, law enforcement officer by the name of Stan Carpenter and his colleagues were absolutely uh, astonished when Louis LaMonica Jr. came by the station, a nearby sheriff's office in 2005. And he said that he wanted to talk about the dedication of a baby to Satan that was held at the church upstairs in what he referred to as the youth room. Um, and he – this is, sounds like he's like turning himself in. This is bizarre. He went on to describe a room where all the windows were blacked out. Uh, he, he was quoted as saying, quote, like black paper, keep it dark. Uh, there was a pentagram in the middle of the floor, he said, and a book of, quote, spells and temptations. Which sounds like the most southern – it sounds like it's, it's a thing purposely made – to scare people who are uh, participating in, like, Christianity in the South. I saw yeah. a book of spells and temptations. Exactly. Did you guys ever um, – Matt, at your church, do they ever do those hell plays? I have been to those at other – Tribulation like Trail, yeah, like the wild. Halloween stuff. I love it. Yeah, to me, it's like an excuse for them to like while out and do the most offensive, creepy, you know, satanic stuff. Um, but it was all with the purpose of like it was like scared straight, like scaring you to into the arms of the Lord. Right? I'm probably yeah. going to one this month. It's, I 
this is my favorite time of it's year. It's a good Vintage time Boy. of the year. I remember the one that they had in my church near or church nearby my house. They had a uh, a crashed car that they would park outside, and it was like they had like a fake dead body in it who wow. had you know, presumably done drugs or something, you know, yeah. un, un, uh, unholy. See, that sounds like my high school. The the Tribulation Trail things were squarely aimed at abortion. Were yes, the ones that yeah, I, I saw to. that. And then the, there's like the final act where someone's saying, well, you could have repented. Yep. And then there's the crew of people at the end of the thing. That's my least favorite part. I try to skip the talk after. I, I'm there for the show. Oh, yeah. Give, give me the action. Um, so a little, little bit of lightheartedness yeah. heartedness there for everybody. Heavy-hearted lightheartedness. Yeah. Yeah. Now, we do want to say before we continue that La Monica here is speaking in a very casual, disaffected, and calm way. He doesn't. He's not, you know, like on the edge of death or he's panic. Not, he's not shook. No. Well, and he's not necessarily worried that he's about to get arrested. Well, no. like at least that's uh, what what the reporting says. It reminds me of the the character from Seven. No spoilers for Seven when he turns himself in and very matter of factly speaks to the authorities in a way where it's like this guy doesn't care what happens to him. He says. Detective! <laughs> Detective! I guess he does get yeah. a little upset. <laughs> well, he's not upset. He's it. just emphatic, right? He's, yeah. He had a plan he was working on, you know what I mean? But uh, La Monica apparently had some kind of plan because he confesses this and more without any prompting, right? And he goes into detail. Yeah, he says he's been having sex with at least two young boys from the time they were four years old until they were 12 or 13. Um, he named names, uh, including Christopher, Labat, who was 24, a deputy sheriff of Give It To Me, Matt. I call it Tangipaho. Tangipaho Parish. But, but we've been calling it Tangipahoa. Tangipahoa. Tangipahoa Parish. Look, we're, we don't. Write us, write in. Know. Let us know. Uh, if you're from T-Town, T T-Parish, let us know how to pronounce it. He implicated this person, Christopher Labat, who was a law enforcement official who uh, apparently for a while lived on the church grounds and was a co-conspirator, according to LaMonica's very eerily even-handed testimony. Yeah, he said that they had abused boys and girls between the age of 1 and 16, taught them to have sexual relations with each other as well as with a canine. He said he had drunk cat's blood. They poured it over the bodies of victims. Some of them were his biological children. And it goes into very, um, very disturbing graphic detail. We found an excerpt from the Daily Mail reporting on this. This is the kind of stuff the Daily Mail likes to report on. And they are rightly not seen as the best of all possible sources. This is mainly to give give everyone a, uh, a sense of what kind of stuff was being reported here. LaMonica describes uh, one of the rituals that allegedly occurs. He says they would start off like a church service, but it was satanic music. There were candles burning, dark red candle holders, and the dedication of baby A. That's probably because the kid's name is, is – you know, kept out of public record. Sure. Uh, the dedication of baby A into Satan with this pentagram. She was put in the middle in a black dress. He describes chanting around the child uh, who was barely one years old at the time before killing a cat, draining its blood, drinking it. Uh, they said they didn't make the child drink the cat blood because she was too young. So instead, they sprinkled the blood over her. And LaMonica said these meetings took place once every two or three months. And we we should state here that according to the Daily Mail, that child that is being described there is the baby of Nicole Bernard, the person that we heard about again, uh, who kind of blew the whistle on this whole thing. Mm -hmm. And then he goes into detail about how they would pursue uh, the sexual abuse. Let's just call back real quick to our uh, – black metal episode, this is what you would consider theistic Satanism, right? Where it's like worshiping Satan, Lucifer, as a deity in the way you would worship any other god. And I think I had a boo-boo in, uh, in the death metal episode, black metal episode, where I said something about how you know, I equated paganism to Satanism, and I know that's not the case, but there is uh, something called dark paganism or the left-hand path or uh, the idea of black magic rituals or occultism that is can be folded into the idea of theistic Satanism. So back to the description of these, um, what LaMonica uh, 
describes as these uh, sexual abuse rituals and how they carried her out. You can find the details uh, online if if you must, if you need to know, but it is disturbing. Uh, it is, I would, I do not use this word lightly, it is unclean uh, and it is not something that we we off off air decided not to present this in graphic detail on air, both out of respect for the victims, out of respect for everyone's sanity, and the fact that if you want to know, you can find it. But he walked into the sheriff's office and he laid this out. You know, he had a disgusting, evil TED talk of sorts. He claimed that they laid feces and urine around while this stuff was happening. And then he said during these satanic rituals, he would become, quote, distorted by the devil. Demons would change him into an animal, a snake, a fox, a wolf, spiders. And like you said, Noel, he named all of his accomplices. And it was men and women involved that he's naming. Yes, absolutely. Men and women in later interviews with victims appeared to confirm the veracity of his account. And LaMonica said the abuse started in 1999, stopped in 2003, but law enforcement officials like Edwards believe it probably continued in members' homes for some unknown period of time after the church shuttered its doors. Astute listeners, you'll notice that we've been using the word claim or uh, allegedly pretty often here. Yeah, or a single person stated this. Mm -hmm. um, What we're going to do after this short break is look at the evidence of what could be proven. So if this was going to go to court and you had to have some kind of material evidence, what would it be? Um, and it may be surprising to you. So we'll, we'll see you right after this. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpert. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. 
experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with the Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, the Apollo Jim murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're back. So how much of it is true? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's all hearsay, honestly, at this point. I mean, there's some corroboration. There's some similarities between these stories. But inside the closed youth hall uh, behind the sanctuary that we've been talking about, the cops did find a faint imprint of some pentagrams drawn on the floor that someone had tried to scrub. Um, they seized computers as well as dozens of videotapes and uh, hundreds of computer disks and eight boxes of documents and photographs. Um, a deputy sheriff by the name of Charles Reed said that included videos of uh, morality plays mm-hmm. uh, performed to confuse the victims. And in some cases, uh, they're undereducated parents. That was, this was, There's was a lot of playing on people's um, fears and perhaps ignorance. Yeah, well, it's it's a problem of authority, right? We trust certain people who wear certain clothes because they're in certain roles, right? Um, we've talked about that a lot before um, on this show. And if you've got someone of authority explaining to you why this is right and this is good, um, unless you have the ammunition to back up, you know, either philosophically or morally or whatever, that this is wrong, then you may be easily manipulated. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's true. And we want to emphasize again that these were initial reports. Yes. The initial reports seem to change. In the immediate aftermath, nine people are arrested on charges of sexual abuse, cruelty to animals, these related things, including the original person who called from Ohio, Nicole Bernard. So Louis LaMonica Jr., Austin Trey Bernard III, Alan R. Pearson, his wife Patricia Pearson, Robin LaMonica, Paul Fontenot, uh, and then Louis Mowbray, who will become more important as the story continues. It's interesting that Charles Reed, that that uh, investigator, that deputy sheriff, said that based on the interrogations of some of these folks, it wasn't super clear whether they truly believed they were worshiping the devil or whether this was just kind of a, an excuse to participate in pedophilia, rampant pedophilia. Right, exactly. And this is where we run into some... Uh, contradicting narratives or different takes. So writing for an outfit called theisticsatanism.com in 2006, Diana Vera notes the initial accusations seemed to quickly narrow in scope over the course of the investigation. So he said that there were uh, allegedly more than 20 children uh, who were victimized by this circle. But by the end of July 2005, the number of alleged victims had been whittled down to three per Vera's writing, and the prosecutors decided eventually, after a certain hearing, to drop any claims involving Satanism or occultism. And this was victims of abuse, child abuse. Right. Not, they don't have bodies. There, there's no evidence of a DNA or of, of murder or anything Right, like that, right, right. right. Uh, that's, another, that's another thing that uh, Diana Vera brings up. She says there's not physical evidence uh, that the children endure, or that all these children endured uh, this torture. kind of abuse. Yeah. yeah, yeah, torture is a good word, especially when you're considering something like an infant. You know what yeah. I mean? So these charges still included the abuse, but other theories allege this was a different sort of conspiracy, less a case of satanic abuse and more a case of brainwashing, that it was Louis Mowbray, not Trey Bernard, who was the ringleader. And this is where we found an interesting tale from Religion News Blog. Yes, and it states that back in 2008, LaMonica Jr., that's uh, the, again, the pastor we've been talking about this whole time is LaMonica Jr. Mm-hmm. Um, he told a jury there in the parish where, where the church was that his confession was in fact false. 
and for everything that he was confessing, um, including the abuse of children, because in his mind, it was the only way, listen to this, to get his wife back and to get his children back. Now, that sounds... Insane. It, It sounds insane, but it only gets stranger. Because then uh, his attorney comes through, a guy named Michael Thiel or Tile Thiel. Um, he he maintains that this guy Lamonica Jr. actually did falsely confess to this rape because, in his mind, or at least in his uh, what his belief is, his attorney is that this guy was being controlled by someone, by a woman who was who believed herself to be a prophet of God and that LaMonica Jr. then believed that she was also the prophet or a prophet of God. Mm-hmm. So it was it was a cult just operating on a different level than maybe we thought. Right. Or, or at least according to this religion news blog. Wait, so it was a it was it was not a satanic cult at all. It was uh, worshiping some sort of false prophet godlike deity wheels within wheels the idea here is essentially that lois malbray the the prophet had created this satanic abuse narrative as a way of controlling the congregants so she took control of the church around 2003 uh, apparently uh, but had been in charge in all but name for a while beforehand it was like, and it started with one of the people that this prophet Malbray or Malbray took control over was was um, the wife of the pastor, right? Right, that's correct. And I mean, so like, it started in his own home, basically, at least according to this story. Yeah, for a while, Lamonica said he had to wear a dress and two rubber snakes representing his mother and his aunts because they were quote pharaohs. This is a testimony in court. Uh, He said church members once shaved his head and called him Pharaoh as well. Uh, He said that, referring to Lois uh, Malbray, he said she convinced herself she was like Moses and Tangipahoa was coming out of Egypt, LaMonica said, referring to the biblical story about Moses leading people away from slavery in Egypt and that Pharaoh was blocking the way. Thus, he was Pharaoh with a little bit of performance art. And they had to get him out of there. Right. Mm. And in this environment, the wives of LaMonica and Bernard, according to this theory, realized uh, that they needed to take custody of their children and free the way for Malbray to lead Tangipahoa to spiritual fulfillment by making up a story of satanic ritual abuse perpetrated by their husbands. And then LaMonica said he was told that he had to write down all these dirty thoughts. He was like forced to do this by the church leadership. And this was a fictional diary of abuse. But then uh, he was told that having a sinful thought is as bad as committing a sinful act. Uh, The only way that he would be able to see his kids again is if he got back on the right path. The only way he could get back on the right path was going to the police station and confessing to things that never happened. That is is one of the theories. I mean, it adds up. In the most bonkers way possible. Right. And both of LaMonica's sons later recanted their claims of abuse because they said – remember he specifically said that he would he had been abusing them? Well, I mean I, I guess we, we, we do have the, the evidence that it had been scrubbed, the crime scene, you know, had yeah, been scrubbed. Yeah, they said that, yeah. I'm just saying like, you know, maybe that could account for any lack of physical evidence but it didn't seem like it was the most uh, – Let's say methodical uh, outfit, the most kind of you know what I mean, mm. like like um, not a super airtight case. That's what no, I just mean in terms of like I don't know that they would have been able to like strike every possible scrap of physical oh, evidence from yeah. the scene. Yeah, you know, it seems like it maybe would have acted in a panic or in some out of desperation, but it doesn't seem like it was the most organized or evil genius kind of situation, right? Like, I don't know if I buy that. Well, you've also got the pastor, the guy who is, you know, in the beginning of the story, allegedly walking in, or we have an account of him walking into the police station and confessing to all this stuff. Mm -hmm. If he knew he was going to do that, then ostensibly you could get rid of all of the evidence prior to walking into that sheriff's office, right? Yeah. Um, uh, there's so many weird things going on here. Um, 
So let's talk about how maybe this actually connects up to the show we mentioned at the top of uh, True Detective. Like, where, where, what are the similarities here? So Pizzolatto has not come out and said, like, this is my inspiration for writing this. Uh, he has said in interviews, he said, you know, you can Google church crime Louisiana. And you'll be surprised what you find. So he is aware and so, to – to some degree. And this, of course, doesn't follow the plot of the true detective cult one-to-one. This – it does seem clear though, as you said, Matt, true detective season one was inspired in part by events alleged to have taken place at the Hosanna Church. And we know in real life at the Hosanna Church, something definitely happened. And now the question remains how much of the actual real-life story is true. From what we can tell, the current evidence indicates three possibilities. One, there genuinely was a theistic satanic abuse ring in play. And maybe not everybody believed it. Maybe there were just some, as you said, predators who were taking the trappings and finding an easy way to get what they actually wanted. Two, the abuse narrative was created by Mowbray as a way to threaten and control members of the Hosanna community. And then three, some fuzzy version of events did occur, but then later became exaggerated. And then people, uh, several people involved had their uh, self-defense mechanisms turned on where then the story just becomes muddled because people are trying to save themselves. And the thing is here too, we say brainwashing, we throw the term around, but we know memory is treacherous. And that's why things like uh, hypnotic regression don't bear out in a lot of in a lot of scientifically controlled studies. So people's memories of things started to change and then the opinion of law enforcement started to change. According to a detective for the Tangipahoa Parish Sheriff's – that was a tough one – Mike DePhillips, there was no physical evidence of the occult such as pentagrams drawn on the floor or spell books. They were never found, which is strange because initial reporting said they were. After the hearing where DePhillips relayed this information, that's when prosecutors said, okay, we're going to drop mentions of the occult from this case. And then going back to religion news blog, the case is mostly based on statements made by three children, one girl and two boys, who repeatedly were assaulted or forced to engage in sex acts of uh, at least twice a week from 2000 to 2001 at Hosanna Church and at a home of three of its members. That's according to DePhillips. He says there's at least one other victim who was not mentioned in court. He also noted detectives found no physical evidence of abuse uh, except for some fluids on bedding and that there were no actual videotapes ever found. So in this one statement, in this interchange, he is denying all the other stuff that initially came out. We listed all those items they found, boxes of docs and tapes with uh, morality plays on them. Mm -hmm. He's recanting that? What did he say? He said it didn't happen. It doesn't exist. That's according to him. That's wild. Well, so here's where we kind of tie it back, right? So if you think about the True Detective series, you do have that old dilapidated church, right, that's broken down. You've got that school that's separate in this case rather than being attached to the church facility. Then you've got that larger conspiracy here, right, Mm -hmm. where for some people hearing this would think, well, maybe DePhillips – and again, this is not – a true statement. This is a statement of opinion. Some people listening may think, well, maybe it's being covered up, right? When you're sure. hearing there's, oh, no, those videotapes don't exist. Those ones that allegedly had the stuff on there for brainwashing. Right. Or maybe they just found videos that were mundane, that didn't have anything. You know? or maybe they did. But, you know, people hear that statement. There are no videos. Don't sure, worry absolutely. about it. Well, even the idea of morality plays, I mean, that's more along the lines of the stuff we were talking about earlier, right? The scared straight kind of stuff. Like the, you know, it's not satanic ritual sacrifice. Well, yeah, and the big... It's a far, so, far stretch from that. So for for me personally, it's less about is this, in, is this in some way a cult or involved with satanic rituals or is this a child sex uh, exploitation ring, right, mm-hmm. of people that are involved beyond just the ones who were accused, right? Well, maybe I'm sorry if, if, I'm, if I'm being redundant, but that is a big part of True Detective is a lot of the satanic trappings were just that. It was sort of a smokescreen. It was like a subterfuge to draw attention away from the fact that it was actually – it was almost a red herring, Right. I mean, yeah, it, you yeah. know, it was it was it was part of the ritualized sex abuse, but it didn't really seem like these members were in it for much more than 
flexing some weird power thing, you know, and and getting what they want, which in, in this case was young children, you know. I mean, it's, it, you know, I mean, in the show is what I'm saying. Yeah. Well, in any case, in this real life example, there were ostensibly real children affected by this. Yep. Um, perhaps more than we know. Um, or that officially got to have their day in court or at least be represented in some way. And um, it's really horrible. And ju we're just putting this out here because we have had – we've done several episodes now at this point where young people, including children, have been abused by adults. I, I can't even count the number actually of specific cases that we have discussed this on, at least four I want to say. Um I think objectively it's one of the most abhorrent things that can occur uh, in reality and we're just – we're putting this out there that um, if you know of anything like this occurring, do not be afraid to speak out and do not be afraid to seek help because there are people that can help you. Make sure to talk to your kids about – always being honest with you about if they're put in any kind of uncomfortable situation, whether it's at school or wherever. Not that we're trying to launch a witch hunt or anything, but it's just important to like have that dialogue because that's honestly how these things fall between the cracks is when there's no communication. Absolutely. If you know of or suspect that a child may be in danger of abuse, do not hesitate to take action. You can visit sites like childwelfare.gov here in the States where you can find a state-by-state -state list of resources and 24-7 abuse reporting hotlines. You can also report anonymously. So do not – we cannot emphasize this enough. Do not hesitate if you are capable of helping someone – or capable of getting the authorities involved and uh, preventing further crimes of this nature. We also want to know what other stories are out there. Uh, Matt, you, you mentioned that true detectives seem to be teetering on the edge of cosmic horror for so long. Uh, we want to know what else is out there just a little bit past the light. What are the strange stories in your neck of the woods? What are the bizarre things that happened that were maybe reported for a weekend and then disappeared? You can tell us about these on Facebook. You can tell us on Instagram. You can tell us on Twitter. We particularly recommend our community page. Here's where it gets crazy on Facebook. If you want to give us a call, your voice may get on the air, but your voice will at least be heard by us. That number is... One eight three three S T D W Y T K. And really quickly, back to the here's where it gets crazy. If you want to join, um, it'll ask you a question, and, and all the question is is name one of the the hosts of the show. But folks often go the extra mile, and our fantastic mods send us some of these screenshots. And this one says, Matt, the nice guy who loves phone calls. Noel, who gets irritated as hell if you call him, and it could have been taken care of through text. And then there's Ben, who really, really hates phone calls. Heaven forbid anyone wants to talk to him. LOL. People just want to talk to you, Ben. They really do. I have no regrets. <laughs> uh, but no, it is seriously a great way to get in touch with us. Uh, we, when I say we, I mean Matt, compiles these uh, fantastic recordings and we learn a lot. So please feel free always to give us a call. Yeah, no pressure. All right, here we go, guys. If you don't want to do any of that, you can still get in touch with us with a good old-fashioned email. We are conspiracy at iheartradio.com. Stuff They Don't Want You to Know is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was wooden! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, And I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there.